Okay, so last week we focused on Romans 3. We looked at verses 21 through 24. Remember that? What was the big idea there? Do you all remember? The struggle for righteousness is over. All right? Today we're going to focus on 24 and 26. So these last two verses. Here's the big idea. How would your life, how would my life be different if justification was real to me? How would my life be different if I really believed or I really enjoyed, if I really lived on and fed on justification? Now, where is this experiential idea of justification in this passage? Do you see it? It's in those last two verses. It starts in verse 25. This, what's this doing? This is summarizing everything Paul has already said. Remember what Paul's already said. What has he said? He said he talked about justification. Then he talked about redemption. And then he talked about propitiation. Three incredible gospel messages that unleash the power of God. Remember the gospel is like a diamond. It's like, it's a diamond that has several cuts. Beautiful, breathtaking cuts. And each cut is like a a different angle of the wonder, of the splendor, of the beauty of the gospel. Justification gives you a cut. Justification is so significant because it gives you most of the diamond in one message. The others, like redemption, are breathtaking and beautiful, and they give you different cuts, but they're a little more specific. They have a specific sliver of splendor they want to shine into your heart. Justification covers several, if not all of them. So you've got justification, redemption, propitiation, all loaded in this particular passage. This is what he's saying in verse 25. This, this justification, redemption, propitiation was to show God's righteousness. Underline the word show in your Bible. Verse 26, it was to show, underline it again, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To show is being used two times in this passage. It's the goal of justification, redemption, and propitiation. It literally means this. To compel acceptance of something mentally and emotionally. The whole goal of this passage is to get you and me to accept mentally and emotionally. To have clear to our mind and real to our heart. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. For it to land in your life. For it to produce with inside you and me a deep acceptance that works itself into your identity. And that your life starts being built and shaped and reconstructed by it. That it moves into your relationships and your friendships and the way you communicate and talk with one another and the way that we relate to each other and the way that you, you handle success. That success is not something that makes you somebody. Success, because of these doctrines, enable you to handle it like it what it is. It's just success. It's fun. It's great. It's nice to feel like you achieve something, but that's all it is. It has its proper place. It's a nice blessing. These doctrines are meant to work themselves into our lives in such a way that you relate to everything in life completely, radically different. In other words, these doctrines are meant to produce what's called a gospel life. 
okay? So that's what we're after this morning. We're after a gospel light. That's what this passage is after. Now, Calvin said the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. Now remember, Calvin's talking about the gospel. Not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates into the inner recesses of the heart. That's what this passage is after in your life. So how does this happen? What difference does a gospel life make in your life? Now, I've got two quick encouragements or exhortations, as we call in the trade, preaching trade, exhortations. Here's the first one. You ready? Let's not be stupid. All right? And the other one's going to be let's not be sloppy. And I'm just going to do this really, really quick, and then we're going to move on. But I feel like I have to do this. Let's not be stupid. Here's what I mean. When your toilet breaks, the answer is not believe the gospel. The answer is get a plumber. Right? However, how you respond to the broken toilet is an issue of the gospel in your life. How you respond while you're trying to fix it, when your helpful spouse comes up and offers their help, that's an issue of the gospel in your life, right? All right, also, let's not be sloppy. There are three ways to pursue life change. We gotta be clear about these because we start crossing the blades, whatever the Star Wars, don't cross the streams. We end up doing this with these things. The first one is antinomism. Do you know what that is? Anti-law living. That's the younger brother living. That's trying to find life by being bad. It's moral relativism. It's indulging your passions. It's going after your deepest desires, which could be good desires, but they dominate and rule you. So the desire for physical peace and comfort gets so big, it becomes what you must have to be saved, and so you're addicted to tons of things. Let's be clear. Licentiousness, which this way of living, younger brother way of living, does not pursue life change. It's not after life change, okay? So let's go to the next. Legalism, moralism, self-righteousness. In other words, trying to find life and meaning and value around your performance, some kind of performance. It could be religious. It could be because you read your Bible or pray or go to church, or it could be irreligious. It could be your performance in your career or your body image, some standards, laws, some way of achieving or performing right? That's moralism and legalism. Now, let's be clear. Legalism is after life change. Through the law. By rules. By your performance. By earning it. By generating it for yourself. This is very, very important. Don't cross the blades. A gospel life, the third way, grace salvation, not performance salvation, is also after life change by the gospel. Both legalism and both gospel third way life is pursuing 
life change. That's not the issue. The issue is how. How? By law, by gospel. Don't be sloppy and slanderous and call the third way or the gospel way licentious. Antinomism. Okay? If you do that, I won't call you a Pelagian. Fair? Good. Let's move on. How does justification, redemption, propitiation make a difference in your life? How? Well, here's the flow of the text. Look at verse 24. Justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is by grace. This is phenomenal. In other words, remember, God establishes for those who are deeply messed up, those who are ever falling short of the glory of God, those who have sinned in the past, the present, and the future, these kind of people, unrighteous, and one we're going to see in chapter 4, the wicked, he calls them, and the ungodly. These kind of people, God freely, graciously establishes a legal, loving relationship with us. Breathtaking, right? God makes us acceptable, perfect, approvable, qualified, worthy, blameless, spotless. And this is free to you. It's by grace. Free. God takes you in. He welcomes you. He leads you, as C.S. Lewis says, into the inner ring, your home, and it's free to you, but it's not free to God. Verse 24, find that word of redemption, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redemption is costly. Free to us, not free to God. Here's what the word literally means. I love it. Liberation, I looked it up. Liberation through payment of a price. Setting free through payment of a price. Remember, Paul has now spent 118 through 320 up into this passage, 64 verses, talking about a universal slavery. The most oppressive and brutal and abusive slavery there is. The slavery of sin. The slavery of being shackled to a body of death that you literally drag around with you and me. Decreation forces and powers unleashing, disintegrating at work in all of our lives. Slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to condemnation or the wrath of God or to hell. Redemption is God sets the slave free. Free from sin. Free from death. Free from the wrath of God. But here's the key. He sets slaves free not by overlooking the slave's debt, but by paying it. What's the slave's debt? What's the slave debt? What's the slave debt and how did God pay it? 
Keep moving. Verse 24, text is moving. These three beautiful words. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What's the redemption? What's the debt? What's the price? What's the ransom? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is the slave debt. Propitiation is how God pays it. I recommend everybody read this book. I recommend every high school student going into college read this book. The Reason for God. Uh, Tim Keller is now probably one of the most influential evangelicals in the country, perhaps the world. Uh, In this book, he talks about something that is hard for us to talk about. And we here at Redeemer are always going to talk about whatever the text brings. We're not going to hide from it. We're going to go right into it. And it might be uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable. But we're going to do it, and we're going to do it together. Okay? Here's the topic. Modern people inevitably think that hell works like this. This is Keller. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. And as the poor souls fall through space, they cry out for mercy, but God says, too late, you had your chance. Now you will suffer. This character, Keller goes on to say, misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture of sin is that it separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy, indeed, all love and wisdom or good things of any sort. Since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his presence will we thrive and flourish and achieve our highest potential. In other words, become your true self. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capability for giving or receiving love, life, joy, goodness. So a common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Because fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness Nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask this question. What if when I die, we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on and on and on forever. The slave debt is hell, the wrath of God. It's separation from God. It's alienation from God. It's an unchecked self-salvation struggle that never, ever, ever, ever gets checked. We are given what we ultimately want. And God pays that debt. God pays the wrath of God. God satisfies, exhausts, extinguishes 
or the big word propitiates the slave debt, the wrath of God. So how does God do this? How does he do this? How does he extinguish his judgment? How does he completely obliterate this horrible self-trajectory of consuming yourself forever and ever and ever and ever? How does he stop that? How does he extinguish that? How does he propitiate that? How is he just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Verse 25 by his blood. By his blood. All hell was unleashed on Jesus at the cross for you. All alienation, all separation, all decreation power and disintegration and self-consuming absorption, centerness, pick your word, was unleashed on Jesus at the cross in your place. Propitiated. The wrath of God was propitiated by blood, God's blood. Until there was no more left until it was all gone, until Jesus said, it's finished. So how does justification, redemption, propitiation make a difference in your life? You know how? You are loved And you are loved with a justifying love. A redeeming love. A propitiating love. Yesterday I was fatiguing as a dad. And you dads ever done that? I wanted to put up a sign. I'm done. I quit. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. You relay, brother. Good. Okay. So when I fatigue as a dad, when I fatigue... I control. I don't know what your, you know, your deal is. You got your messes. I got mine. Well, I control. I control behavior. I control feelings. I control words. I control moods. I control what's eaten, what's not eaten. I control Play-Doh. I control SpongeBob. I control blocks. I control Minecraft. I control everything. So my wife, my lovely wife, my lovely bride, Nancy, she has like this little this antenna that's aware of when I'm in dad fatigue. And she very nicely just says, honey, you know what? I read this tweet today and it went something like this. You can't control people, but you can always love them. Richard Rohr wrote a book called Breathing Underwater. I love that. Isn't that a great title? Breathing Underwater. Spirituality in the 12 Steps. He writes that for most people, their identity pattern, how they build their identity, makes them understand their sin and how change happens like this. Here's the pattern. We see sin and we see change. And how we interact with this, based on our identity pattern, goes like this. First there's sin, then there's punishment, 
then there's repentance, then there's transformation. So in other words, he goes like this. When someone sins, they must be punished. Sin, punishment. This is how most 99% of us function in the church, according to this book. Which then, when you get the punishment, it might lead the person or lead you to finally say you're sorry. Repentance. Which might lead you then to finally change your life. Transformation. I was like, okay, that's about right. Uh Uh-huh. And he goes, that's incredibly bad news. That's the worst news there could ever be. That kind of news, there's no hope for you and me. Because punishment never changes a life. Coercion and control never change anybody. In fact, it throws gasoline on the fire. Fear doesn't change anybody. He says, quote, but it's this pattern we all too often impose on ourselves and on those we love. Rohr writes, our own, only love affects true inner transformation, not duress, not guilt, not shunning, not social pressure. Love is not love unless it's totally free. Grace is not grace unless it's totally free. So the pattern is this. You sin, but then there's uncondition. This is the pattern of the gospel, the pattern of Christianity. You sin, but there's unconditional grace, unconditional love. Free to you and me, costly to God. Sin, love, transformation, change, a repentance. God seduces us into the economy of grace by loving us in spite of ourselves in the very places where we cannot or will not or dare not love ourselves and love others. God resists our evil and conquers it with the good. How does he conquer it? Because of propitiation. Because Jesus took all the wrath, all the accusations, all the judgment in the whole universe of God himself and of every human being and he took it on himself and drank every last drop until it was finished and now now you are loved and you turn around and you love others this is the story of the Bible this is the story of the prodigal son this is the story of Moses the murderer This is the story of Jacob, the cheating, lying, power-hungry son. I personally don't like Jacob. I like Esau. Esau was a much better guy than Jacob. David, the adulterer, the traitor, the murderer, everyone in the Bible, you and me, that's how we changed. And that's only how we're going to change. Justification, redemption, propitiation, You are loved. Now, you're free to love one another.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit.